Hello, and welcome back to the Neurotransmitters. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very happy to have a new special guest with us today, Dr. Jacqueline Kaur, coming to us internationally. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Although I guess I should say uh, it's not morning where you are. Um, so tell us tell us a little bit about your background, where you're coming to us from. Right. Uh, it's actually evening where I'm from. I'm talking from Punjab, the northern part of India. I'm a fresh graduate out of med school, and I'm really excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. So we're doing something a little bit new. Well, partially new. We haven't done it in a while, and we're trying to make it more regular. But we're going to kind of be going through some teaching cases, real-life cases that people have experienced in their medical training, medical experience, and kind of how they've managed them. And so, Jipleen, I'm very grateful that you reached out and uh, came up with this neat case. I think it's got some really good teaching points for it. So uh, why don't you go ahead and give us, uh, give us the starting uh, chief complaint, the opening vignette, if you will. Right. So the most interesting part of this case was actually how we came across this patient's presentation. We were in the middle of our morning rounds. We were actually checking up on another patient when one of our nursing staff, uh, she noticed a subtle movement in this patient's left shoulder. So her observation actually led to a chain reaction of distraction that caught my attending's eye. So he was familiar uh, with this patient. He had a long history with her and he was familiar with her past medical complaints. So she did uh, show up with a chief complaint of the slow, jerky, continuous movement in the left shoulder. And she seemed to be entirely conscious during this whole episode of the subtle movements. So a little bit about this patient is that she's a 56-year-old lady with a past medical history suggestive of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, a history of some stroke that we're unclear on, herpes encephalitis. Um, and now she's presenting to us with this slow, jerky, continuous movement in the left shoulder. Based on the patient's history, uh, this movement was ongoing since the last 12 hours, and a chart review revealed that she was already on 750 milligrams of levetiracetam and nitam alprazolam, but none of these medications uh, seem to have suppressed her movement. Okay, so so you said that she was awake during this entire period of time. Right. Our patient was actually contributing to her own history. She was able to tell us that she had this movement that was ongoing for the last 12 hours. She wasn't able to use her arm on the affected side. She said she had this new onset weakness, so to say, in the arm. Uh, she, she told us that mm. it initially started more distally and then progressed proximally. Okay, so it kind of evolved over the, the territory of that limb. Is that right? Right. Okay, excellent. So at this point, tell me a little bit about, I know you mentioned some of these historical features, right? She's got these right. uh, old strokes and uh, so forth. Did she have any any chronic neurologic problems after those, or did she make a full recovery after those old injuries? Uh, she did make a full recovery after the old injury, but her MRI had some, uh, her imaging had some changes, uh, but the, otherwise the patient was, clinically she was completely fine after the old injury. So you mentioned that she was on some levetiracetam. Was that prior to this admission or was that new for this particular problem? Uh, that was prior to the admission. She, I, it, I think it is common practice on the side of the world to start the patients on anti-seizure medications after the history of stroke. Okay. Uh, she did not give us any history of any seizure episodes prior to this, but she was on a prophylactic dose of levetiracetam. And was she taking it pretty regularly at home, to the best of your knowledge? As per our knowledge, yes. Yes. Okay. So, so at this point, you know, what's what's happening next? On examination, our patient was oriented to time, place, and person. Like I said, she could contribute to her own history. 
Of note, she did have reduced power in the affected arm and the hand. Uh, this reduction in power was more distal than it was proximal. Uh, no loss of power or sensation was noted in any other part of the body. Reflexes were normal at the time of examination. Because of the paucity of time and resources, uh, EEG was deferred at this point of time. Uh, her imaging revealed some cystic encephalomalacia of the right cerebral hemisphere and the left temporal region. These findings were concurrent with a previous stroke and herpes encephalitis. So a clinical diagnosis of epilepsia partialis continua was made given her history of herpes encephalitis. So this patient was started on phosphenidoin as per weight. So you, you gave a, a weight-based loading dose? Yes. And how was the response to that? So I revisited this patient an hour later and her movements had completely subsided. She made a return to baseline and she was doing pretty well at this point. Uh, even her part, which she said that there was a loss of part in the affected limb, she had a return of part to baseline. Excellent. So does that? how does that support or kind of refute our, our working theory as far as diagnosis? So considering she made a full recovery on the phosphenitoin and EPC is a type of status epilepticus, uh, I think it would support our diagnosis, uh, our initial clinical suspicion of a, a focal onset status epilepticus. Now, you brought up an interesting point, uh, and you said that uh, you weren't able to get an EEG in this particular case. So tell me a little bit how that factored into like you and your team's decision-making at that point in time. Right. Uh, it is a common practice here because we cannot, because of cost issues, since a lot of patients uh, on our side of the world, they have out-of-pocket expenditure for their health. We don't commonly have insurance for every patient. So there are a lot of tests that can't be ordered because of paucity of resources. So despite the absence of an EEG because of a, high clinical suspicion based on her clinical features and her imaging findings. And because the attending physician had a long-term history with this patient, because of his high clinical suspicion, we were able to achieve uh, a diagnosis of EPC, even without an EEG. Yeah. And it did sound like there were some features by the history, like potential, maybe not quite, but like a, almost like a Jacksonian march in that arm. Right. Is, that, is that what you guys were thinking right. at the time? Right. Excellent. And I think this brings up a, a very interesting point, right? When we talk about testing availability in different environments, you know, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about that. You know, I'm, I'm in the United States. I'm at a, I hesitate to use the word regional referral center, but it's a, our local level one trauma center, you know, in a, about a 60 mile radius. And I don't have necessarily like stat EEG availability for, you know, Saturdays and Sundays pretty often on the weekends due to availability of technicians and things like that. And even uh, when I was a trainee at a university program for a couple of years, again, even at a larger place, we didn't have stat. Uh, well, we had stat availability, but we didn't have routine EEGs. So you had to call the technician in. So it's one of those things where not only do you need to have like the, the money for the patient to pay it if there uh, is a cost issue, but also the the people with the expertise and skills to apply the electrodes and uh, run the test. And in the United States, at least, that is uh, a skill set that is very much in demand in terms of like, there's not very many training programs uh, widespread throughout the country. And so there's kind of a national shortage here as well. And I think that really brings up the point of the, the importance of making clinical diagnoses Right. Well, that is something that was really stressed upon during our uh, med school training. 
when we were training with our general physicians. What is really interesting about this case is that this diagnosis of EPC was not actually made by a neurologist. This was a general physician who uh, does not routinely see cases of epilepsy. So I think that is a big learning point for everyone who was involved in this case is to be very vigilant and you know be able to make a decision uh, at the time just based on our clinical acumen. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. I I can't think of the last time I had a non-neurologist mention EPC to me specifically. And for those who aren't familiar, who might be listening, right? Epilepsia partialis continua. I didn't know if you had uh, any knowledge to drop on us regarding that particular entity. <laughs> I'll let you drop all the knowledge on that. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're using the updated uh, nomenclature, because you know, in neurology, we have obviously hundreds of years of uh, very uh, formal language describing different diagnoses. But uh, EPC, or epilepsia partialis continua, uh, sometimes it's called focal motor status epilepticus. And it's a very interesting entity. Very often, like in your case, it is related to some sort of structural abnormality, um, some sort of encephalomalacia, uh, an old stroke, maybe uh, some sort of tumor, something like that, that causes focal irritation over the motor cortex, generally speaking. And it's very interesting because very often in these patients who are awake and alert during these seizures, the EEG itself, even if we do get it, may not show any abnormalities. So it has to do with kind of the sensitivity of the EEG and the fact that you need a certain volume, or I should say area, of cortex to be involved before it will get through the skull to the recording electrodes. And so if it's not generating enough electricity to get to the electrodes, you might be looking with your eyes at the patient and seeing something that looks for all the world like a seizure, but then you look at the scalp EEG recording and you know you may see something, but you very well may not. And in fact, the majority of cases, I think up to 80% in some studies, uh, don't show any focal abnormalities or any should say focal seizures with the activity. So it's definitely one of those things where you know if it you know, looks like a duck and walks like a duck, maybe it's a duck. Uh, so you definitely have to keep your clinical picture in mind and don't let your test necessarily lead you astray. Uh, so it's important to really know, like, what is the utility of the test that I'm doing, if I even have it available? So yeah, that's, I think that's a, a really important point. And I've certainly had several cases of epilepsia partialis continua in the past, and they can be really darned hard to to get under control with anti-seizure medications. Sometimes they will persist despite multiple anti-seizure medications. And so the, you wind up in this um, bit of a difficult paradigm where, for instance, with like generalized convulsive status epilepticus, we know that you know, that's definitely causing brain injury over time and we need to treat that aggressively. But with focal seizures without impaired awareness, okay that data isn't quite as robust. And so we definitely have to weigh the risks and benefits of seizure activity versus the potential morbidity and mortality of having someone intubated and put into a medically induced coma. So I think in those cases, you wind up having to tread much more carefully and not just defaulting into kind of like guideline-based care. You definitely have to tailor it to the individual in those particular cases. Right. So what, can, what else can you tell us about our patient here today? Or what else did you learn that you're taking forward with you right. for your future care of epilepsy patients? Well, this uh, patient played a very big role in, uh, you know, for me to choose neurology as a career path, because I remember having this uh, conversation with the patient's family 
that this subtle movement in her arm was a seizure episode and having to convince this patient who came from a rural background that it's somebody who thinks of seizures like just generalized tonic-clonic movements to have this conversation with them that you know seizures can present uh, like they did in their uh, family member or their relative. That was a very interesting point to discuss with them. During this discussion, we also talked about you know misconceptions about uh, seizures that they had. They thought epilepsy was a psychiatric diagnosis. A lot of people in India believe it's because of black magic or some supernatural part. So that is something I've actually been working on in the past one year. I Very recently, I went for this seminar with uh, the te- teachers. We were training teachers on early identification of absent seizures. Uh, we were teaching them about seizure first aid. So this case really helped me work in that direction. It's given me something to work towards, especially in my part of the world, where people don't really know what epilepsy means, what seizures can present like. So I think that's something that we really need to talk about as a community, put it out there that you know, epilepsy is not just GTC, could be focused. And that, that is a great point. And there's there's tons of stuff all over the literature emphasizing exactly that thing, which people outside of neurology, sometimes outside of epilepsy as a subspecialty, aren't as familiar with. Like people recognizing, in particular, what we used to call like complex partial seizures or focal seizures with impaired awareness, right? The the different manifestations, both behavioral and motor. Um that can be very, very tricky to nail down. And uh, like so many things in neurology, right, it all comes back to the story. So having a reliable eyewitness is is such an important part uh, to making that diagnosis. Uh, because if we think again, right, like a routine EEG, the sensitivity of a single study in isolation, it's maybe around 50% for picking up an interictal epileptiform abnormality. Uh, MRI may or may not show any f- structural abnormalities. And so you're left with a couple normal tests, but that doesn't rule out the possibility of seizures or epilepsy. So when, again, right when you're in these areas where testing may not be readily available, as many of us frequently are, then it really comes back to, does it sound, does it fit my mental model of what a seizure behaves like? And that's always the most challenging part because there's always some variation right some some distant edge case of a seizure that you know there are reports of such and such a thing happening uh and that's always the the i think simultaneously fascinating but also sometimes frustrating part of uh working with epilepsy is that like well i'm not familiar with this particular manifestation but maybe i need to dig into the literature a little bit and look and see is this something that's been reported if so does that really match up how deep do i need to go uh, and it's uh, okay. it's one of those things that, uh, again, one of my instructors in fellowship would always say, you know, it's just such a humbling specialty because you are always seeing new things, new manifestations. Uh, you can't ever write anything off because as soon as you do, you wind up getting proven wrong. <laughs> that is very true. Do you have any advice for us, Janies, about how to identify these focal seizures when, when we look at them? Yes. So, and again, right, this kind of comes back to what are the resources available in your area? If patients or families have even just a smartphone, if they're able to video record an episode, that can be very, very helpful. And I think uh, the International League Against Epilepsy actually has a really nice website. I believe it's epilepsydiagnosis.org. 
uh, which is free to register for. And they actually have multiple video examples of different types of seizures that uh, you can review. So I think back to my fellowship uh, in epilepsy, and we did every week, we would spend at least an hour, usually more, um, like an hour of formal didactic sessions, and then multiple hours throughout the day in the course of our work, reviewing videos of people having seizures. And like the attending would be, oh, look at the way the hand turns thus, you know, like the little twist of the hand, see the change in the facial expression. You can tell when the seizure ends because the posture changes. It's all these very, very subtle things that once you've done it for a while, you become attuned to it, right? You're training your mind to recognize what your eyes are seeing. And, you know, in neurology, uh, I think movement disorder specialists are particularly good at this. Um, I don't consider myself the best at movement disorders. And so I'm always a little bit in awe of them. But I like to think that we have a similar uh, type of training in epilepsy where we're looking at these spells. So if we are able to see the spell, we can usually get a pretty good handle on not just is it epileptic or not, but where may it be coming from in terms of localization, which, you know, as a neurologist, right, is kind of our our watchword. But um, for trainees, to get back to your original question, uh, I think watching videos of seizures is the most useful thing for getting better at recognizing them. So just going and finding as many video recordings as you can from reliable sources. I will say YouTube, not always the best place to go because you will see okay. sometimes non-epileptic spells that are listed as seizures uh, or other types of movement disorders or sleep disorders or other kinds of unusual phenomena. Uh, so you do have to view those with a grain of salt uh, if you're not getting them from a kind of a vetted source, I would say. Thank you for that advice. Of course. Any other final thoughts you have for us today, Javelin? Well, I learned a lot today. Thank you for the little advice about learning as we go in uh, epilepsy. I'll definitely be searching up those videos on focal seizures and learning more about uh, you know epilepsy and these focal seizures. No, I think this is a great this is a great case. It's one of those challenging uh, types of patients that can present. I'm glad that this patient seemed to have a good response to treatment. As you know, as we talked about, sometimes it's not quite as cut and dry. So it's always good when you have a, a good response to treatment. And that is one of the things that we we know, right? Uh, if we give an anti-seizure medication, we get a good response. That's pretty suggestive, even in the absence of some of our more discrete uh, neurologic diagnostic testing. So I think that's that's a great point to keep in mind is sometimes uh, we consider it a therapeutic and a diagnostic trial of medication in some situations, right? Right. Now... You are also online, right? If people want to find you online, where should they look for you? Well, I'm on Twitter and I'll be, I'm very active on LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is NeuroJ99 if anybody wants to reach out to me on Twitter. And how about on LinkedIn? Uh, my LinkedIn is Jafreen Ford. That's yep. just my name. Straight, Ford, yeah. Straightforward enough. And you can, of course, find <laughs> me also on Twitter slash X at Dr. Kentris. That's Dr. Kentris, K-E-N-T-R-I-S. And of course, you can always check out our stuff linked at the neurotransmitters.com. So thank you all again for listening this time. And Jeppelin, thank you again for coming on and talking about this case with us. Thank you for having me.